All right, Isaiah chapter number one tonight. Let's read the very first verse and then uh, we'll jump into our text. The Bible simply says to open this monumental book, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now that verse in and of itself may not seem very impactful, but in it we have in germ form all of the details we need to begin setting the stage for the study of the book of Isaiah. Let me give you some information as we jump into our notes tonight. Anytime we study the Word of God, there are essentially three things that we are trying to ascertain. We're trying to learn who wrote it and who it was written to. Now, you and I understand that the Word of God is given by inspiration of God. It's not the words of men, but it's the very words of God. Uh, But it's still paramount that we understand who held the pen, who the person was that God used to pin down this book of the Bible. And also it's important that we understand who it was written to. Uh, A golden rule of Bible study is this. All the Bible is written for me, though it is not all written to me. And if you don't understand who it's written to, you'll struggle to understand what it's written about. So we want to know who wrote it and who it was written to. Then number two, we want to know when and where it was written. It's important that we understand the historical context in which this passage in the Word of God was written. And it's paramount that we understand where it was written, where it was pinned down. There are portions of the Bible you won't understand unless you understand literally the geographical position of the penman and what he is dealing with. There's a passage I'm reminded of in the book of Psalms, Psalms 137, I believe it is, uh, that's written uh, by one of the children of Israel during the time of exile. And they're talking about how by the river Kedar they sat down and they wept, they hang, they hang their hearts upon trees. If you don't understand that this is a people in exile, surgically removed by the divine judgment of God from the place of their home and comfort, you won't understand what that psalm is about. So it's important to understand when and where it was written. And then finally, we want to understand what was written and why it was written. And the study of the Word of God is essentially this pursuit. I want to know what the Bible says, and I want to know why that it says I don't want to know a preacher's opinion about it. I don't want to know some Bible uh, Bible teacher's opinion about it. I want to know what God said, and I want to know why God said it. So we're seeking to learn those three things broadly over the scope of the whole study, but particularly some of these things we really want to focus on tonight. If you want to know the theme of the book of Isaiah, we've titled our entire series according to this theme, and you need to look no farther than the name Isaiah. In fact, the name Isaiah means salvation is of Jehovah. Salvation is of the Lord. And until you understand this theme as the heartbeat of the book of Isaiah, you won't really understand what God's trying to communicate here. The theme of this book is that God is my salvation. I'll not look to the arm of flesh. I'll not look to the strength of man. God is my salvation. Accordingly, if we were to choose a theme verse for the book of Isaiah... It would be Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2. reads this way, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. This is the thing that will carry us through the book of Isaiah. And this is the thing that will inform everything that we read and learn throughout these next few weeks. So let's begin with our notes tonight. And we'll begin, as you should always begin, with a preface. 
The prophecy of Isaiah is the third longest complete literary entity in the Bible, being exceeded in length only by Jeremiah and Psalms. Psalms is in a special category as a collection of separate literary units. Isaiah is at once familiar and neglected. Chapters like Isaiah 6 and 35 and 40 and 53 are among the best-known parts of the Old Testament. And there are briefer, well-known sections in chapters like 7 and, and Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 61. There are, however, vast stretches of the book, especially in chapters 13 through 34, that are virtually unknown to most Christians. And by the way, I'll raise my hand to that as well, so I've studied uh, in this series of lessons, so much of it was unfamiliar to me. Ignorance of any part of the scripture is to be deplored, but this is particularly so with a book that gives such a manifold presentation of Christ. Moreover, a study of the book in its wholeness presents a view of him that is most majestic and moving, one in which the virtually unknown context of the well-known passages shed a flood of light on those passages themselves. The New Testament writers recognized Isaiah's special importance, quoting from and alluding to it frequently, in fact, uh, more than any of the other Old Testament prophets. There are three great divisions in the book of Isaiah, though these again readily subdivide. Part one is chiefly ministry to the conscience of Israel and Judah, suffering under God's hand in judgment, with Messiah's coming as the goal of blessing before them. It consists of chapters 1 to 35 and is an orderly, connected series of messages or burdens evidently uttered by Isaiah before the illness of Hezekiah. Part two is historical, though of a prophetical and typical character, showing how for Judah all blessing is bound up with a son of David who goes down to death but is raised up by omnipotent power, this being, of course, Hezekiah the king. It consists of chapters 36 to 39 and is almost identical with 2 Kings 18, 13, to 20 and verse 19, and also as to the main points with Second Chronicles 32. Isaiah himself doubtless was the recorder of the portion of the book of Kings written during his ministry, and by divine direction he introduces the parts specified into the book bearing his name. Part 3 concludes the prophecy, embracing chapters 40 to 66. It sets forth the utter failure of the first man and the bringing in of the second, the Lord from heaven. Israel, as the true, as the servant of God, is shown to be unfaithful in every particular and is set, a, and, uh, is set aside that the true servant, the elect of Jehovah, may be manifested. By the way, the only time in your Bible that the word elect refers to an individual is in the book of Isaiah. And it's not talking about some Calvinist, but it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, all God's counsel shall stand and his glory be established and that forevermore. We know from later revelation that he, the eternal son of the father, will be the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead shall be displayed forever. In addition to the wealth of theological truth found in this majestic book, there is also much practical strength to be drawn from the prophet's message. I like this quote, Isaiah is great for two reasons, wrote William Sanford Lesore. He lived in momentous days, in critical days of international upheaval, and he wrote what many consider to be the greatest book in the Old Testament. We see Isaiah move with fearless dignity through the chaos of his day, wrote E.M. Blakelock, firm in his quiet faith, sure in his God. At a time when empires were rising and falling and his nation was in peril, it was Isaiah who wrote 
In returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. And when a new generation faced the arduous task of rebuilding a ruined nation, it was the words of Isaiah the prophet that gave them courage. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah is the prophet we need to hear today as he cries out God's message above the din of world upheaval. As we study Isaiah's book, we shall meet not only this outstanding prophet, but also some mighty kings and rulers, and we shall witness the rise and fall of magnificent kingdoms. We shall see God's people chastened and then restored. But above all else, we shall see the Lord Jesus Christ, God's suffering servant, as he does the will of God and suffers and dies for the sins of the world. Looking at the introduction material, it begins this way. There had been a time when men had sought for salvation and deliverance wholly by material means. A great judgment had overcome the earth in the flood. And that they might not be scattered abroad over the face of the earth, men sought to make a name for themselves by the Tower of Babel. This, however, their means of salvation, in reality became the occasion of their destruction, in that they were dispersed and their tongues confounded. Thus, sin could not be concentrated in one place. Mankind as a unit could no longer boast itself against God. A new order therefore set in. Mankind was scattered with the result that individual nations and peoples arose. From among them in the time of Moses, God chose one people to be a nation for his name. It was to be a nation among nations, but one in which the righteousness of the righteous God would be justly exhibited in the judicial proceedings of the people and in their daily life. Israel, however, in fact, showed herself to be little different from the other nations. It was an age of various religions and cults of various people. In such conditions, salvation was not to be found, and the old spirit of Babel again asserted itself. As never before in the history of the world, the idea of conquest gained ground, and one nation sought to subdue other nations and to make them a part of itself. Thus the Assyrian king appeared upon the horizon. And his appearance signaled the striving for a new order of things. A reaching for universalism, such as the world had never before known, now began to appear. And a reaction against the old order took place. Again, the spirit of Babel was present. And again, man began to exalt himself as he had tried to do at Babel. There would be no tower to reach into the heavens, but there would be a world empire. Mankind would not be concentrated in one spot. He would cover the earth, but would belong to one kingdom, the kingdom of man. Man was to rule and to extend his sway, and man's kingdom was to cover the world so that man alone would be exalted through such universalism. Where would Israel fit into this scheme? Was Israel to be swallowed up in the world kingdom, or would she, for some reason or other, resist the march of civilization? The appearance of Assyria had to be explained, for the Jews could have made no greater mistake than to turn at this time to Assyria for help. Yet the Jews did just this thing. They turned to the one who was to accomplish their destruction, and so the Lord, who overrules all things for his glory, brought upon them what they had asked for, even the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria did come, and the whole course of human history was changed. Isaiah advised against dependence upon Assyria but to no avail. Opposed to the purposes of man was the plan of God, thank the Lord. He had decreed to save his people, and his purposes were not to fail. God's purpose was the exaltation of himself, and this purpose would be brought about by God's deliverance of man. Man must learn that his deliverance cannot come from himself. 
To God alone he must look. Israel was the chosen nation. Long before God had set before Israel blessing and cursing, he had told her the consequences of choosing cursing. Israel, however, had acted as though she needed no God. Her desire for a king was prompted merely from longing to be like other nations. Even a king like Saul would have satisfied. Even though the curses were again spoken before Israel in the time of Solomon, she paid no attention. She might have remained in her land to enjoy its productivity and prosperity. The exile need never have come. But Israel chose cursing. She had therefore to learn that salvation could come to her only in the form of a servant. If ultimately she was to attain to life, she had first to pass through death. The exile, that period of God's great indignation, must come upon Israel in order that through the exile, a remnant might pass and return, and that from this remnant, the Savior might finally come. The exile seemed to form the climax in human history of the curses that came upon the nation. Not all at one stroke, however, did the curses come. They came gradually, and Israel continued her hardness of heart against the Lord. After the time of Solomon, there were partial afflictions. The Philistines and the Syrians harassed Israel, but they did not accomplish her total defeat. Then there was Assyria. The incursions of other peoples had been as nothing compared to the punishment Assyria brought about. Yet even Assyria was not the end. She was a fulfillment of the earlier punishments, but she was also the preparation for the exile. Even in Assyria's coming, we can see gradation. There was, first of all, Tiglath-Pileser, who harassed the northern kingdom and took some tribes into captivity. Then came Shalmaneser, and the northern kingdom was destroyed completely. Then came Sennacherib. Judah had been vexed, but not completely wiped out. Jerusalem remained as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. Assyria was not able to overthrow Jerusalem. It was in Babylon that the Mesopotamian power reached its climax. Babylon, the type and symbol of hostile opposition to God's people, finally overthrew Jerusalem. The people of God were then dispersed. Into the worldwide empire, into the universalism of that day, the people of God had to go. The Jews were compelled to go through the exile, and for them this was a period of indignation. They had to be in the form of a servant, a servant to Babylon, that thus ultimately they might learn that life can only come from God. They must see that the bondage to Babylon from which Cyrus had freed them was but a type of the greater bondage, that bondage of a spiritual nature which had separated them from God and from which they could be delivered only by one who was truly a servant, the servant of the Lord. This one, unknown and yet the one so well known, is the Redeemer. He is the one who accomplishes the purposes of God as the nation itself never could have done. Isaiah exercised his prophetic ministry at a time of unique significance, a time in which it was of utmost importance to realize that salvation could not be obtained by reliance upon man, but only from God himself. For Israel, it was the central or pivotal point of history between Moses and Christ. The old world was passing, and an entirely new order of things was beginning to make its appearance. Where would Israel stand in that new world? Would she be the true theocracy, the light to lighten the Gentiles, or would she fall into the shadow by turning for help to the nations which were about her? Now, as possibly never before, Israel had to know that her help was in the Lord. To explain this truth to the people of God was the task of Isaiah the prophet. It was this man whom God so highly exalted in choosing him to be the bearer of this message. No man acting in his unaided strength could meet the challenge of the times. 
only a prophet directly raised up by God who spoke the very words which God had placed in his mouth could speak the message that needed to be heard. Such a man was Isaiah. He spoke of the Assyrian. He spoke of the sin of Judah. But he spoke also of Christ. If it be asked how Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. could predict Christ, the answer is that God revealed his words to the prophet and the prophet spoke them forth. Most of the prophets uh, will begin reading Isaiah the man and his biography. Most of the prophets moved in an orbit of obscurity and anonymity. They did not project their personalities into the prophecy they proclaimed. Jeremiah and Hosea are the exceptions to this, which we will see when we study their books. Isaiah gives us very little history concerning himself. There are a few scant references to his life and to his ministry. The opening heading of the book, which we read earlier, places the ministry of Isaiah in the reigns of Uzziah, or Azariah, as he is called in 2 Kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We suggest that, in fact, his ministry continued probably into the reign of Manasseh. The name borne by this great prophet means the salvation of Jehovah. The name was not an uncommon one. It was borne by one of the heads of the singers in the time of David, in fact, a Levite of the same period, by one of the chief men who returned to Jerusalem with Ezra, by a Benjamite mentioned in Nehemiah, and by others. The form may be compared with that of Hezekiah, which means the strength of Jehovah, and Zedekiah, which means the righteousness of Jehovah. It was one of singular appropriateness in the case of the great prophet, since the salvation of Jehovah was the subject which Isaiah was especially commissioned to set forth. Isaiah's father, according to Jewish tradition, was a brother of Amaziah, the king, father of King Uzziah of Judah. If the tradition is correct, Isaiah was a nephew of King Amaziah and a cousin of King Uzziah. Isaiah apparently had access to King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, members of the royal court, and the priests. While this cannot be substantiated, Isaiah may have been an aristocrat, for he seemed to have easy access to kings. Isaiah tells us that he had two sons, Shearjashub and Mahershalalhashbaz, whose names are connected with his prophetical office. Shearjashub was the elder of the two by many years. His wife is called the prophetess, which may simply mean she was a prophet's wife, as there is no record of a personal prophetic ministry by her. She was, however, the mother of his two known children, both of whom had names with symbolic meanings, which may account for this description of it. Isaiah was probably quite young at the time of his vision and call, as his ministry cannot have been shorter than 34 years. He seems to have prophesied largely, if not exclusively, in Jerusalem and its environs. It's often assumed from chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, that the rejection of his warning to Ahaz led to a temporary withdrawal from public ministry. The prophet tells us that he saw a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It would follow from this that even if he began his prophetic career as early as the 20th year of his age, he must have been born 20 years before Uzziah's death or in B.C. 779. He certainly lived till the 14th year of Hezekiah of B.C. 714, and probably outlived that monarch who died in B.C. 699 or 698. It's not unlikely that he was even contemporary for some years with Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, so that we may perhaps assign him conjecturally the space between B.C. 780 and B.C. 690, which would give him a lifetime of 90 years. 
that Isaiah was a Jew of good position, dwelling at Jerusalem and admitted to familiar intercourse with the Jewish monarchs, Ahaz and Hezekiah, is sufficiently apparent. Whether or not he was brought up in the schools of the prophets is uncertain, but he must have received his call at a very early age, probably when he was about 20. That he was the historiographer at the Hebrew court during the reign of Jotham, and again during the reign of Hezekiah, appears from the second book of Chronicles. In this capacity, he wrote an account of the reign of Uzziah, and also one of the reign of Hezekiah for the book of the Kings. He may also have written accounts of the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz, but this is not stated. His main office was that of prophet or preacher to both kings and people. The composition of his numerous and elaborate prophecies, which are poems of a high order, must have furnished him with continual occupation. Isaiah relates in his sixth chapter a very solemn call which he received from God in the year that King Uzziah died. It's thought by some that this was his original call to the prophetical office, but the majority of commentators are of a different opinion. They know that the original call of a prophet, where recorded, naturally occupies the first place in his work, and that there's no conceivable reason for Isaiah's having postponed to his, the sixth chapter, an account of an event which preceded his first. It would follow that the original call of the prophet is unrecorded, as is the case with most prophets, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The career of Isaiah as a prophet commenced, as he tells us, in the reign of King Uzziah or Azariah. It is a reasonable supposition that it began late in that monarch's reign, but still a year or two before, his, uh, before its close. Uzziah was at that time a leper and dwelt in a several house, Jotham his son being regent and having the direction of affairs. was probably, excuse me, Isaiah's early prophecies were probably written at this time. In the year that King Uzziah died, probably but not certainly before his death, Isaiah saw the vision recorded in chapter 6 and received thus a fresh designation to his office under circumstances of the deepest solemnity. It is remarkable, however, that we cannot assign any of his extant writings except chapter 6 to the next period of 16 years. Apparently during the reign of Jotham, he was silent. But with the accession of Jotham's son Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, commenced a period of prophetic activity. The prophecies from chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 4, have a structural connection and a unity of purpose which unite them into a single body and belong manifestly to the portion of the reign of Ahaz when he was engaged in the Syro-Ephraimite war. A prophecy in chapter 14 is assigned by the writer to the last year of the same king. Hitherto, the prophetic energy of Isaiah had seemingly been fitful and spasmatic, but from henceforth, it proceeded to flow in a steady, continuous stream. There are sufficient grounds for assigning to the reign of Hezekiah the entire series of prophecies following upon chapter 10 and verse 5, with the single exception of the short burden of Palestine dated in Ahaz's last year. The contents of these prophecies tend to spread them over the different periods of Hezekiah's reign and show us the prophet constantly active throughout its entire duration. Whether Isaiah's prophetic career lasted still longer, extending into the earlier part of uh, the reign of Manasseh, is doubtful. A portion of the prophecies contained in his book are thought by some to belong to Manasseh's time, and Jewish tradition places his death under Manasseh. Our conjectural estimate of his lifetime is following between uh, B.C. 780 and B.C. 690 would make him contemporary with Manasseh 
for the space of nine years. The Jewish tradition concerning Isaiah's death placed it in the reign of Manasseh and declared to it, have been, it to have been a most horrible and painful martyrdom. Isaiah, having resisted some of Manasseh's idolatrous acts and ordinances, was seized and by his orders, and having been fastened between two planks, was killed by being sawn asunder. The mention of this mode of punishment in the epistle of the Hebrews is thought by many to be an allusion to Isaiah's faith. Look with me for a moment at Isaiah's times, not as much the man individually, but what sort of times did this man grow up in? What exactly was going on during his life at this time? During Isaiah's childhood, when Israel was ruled by King Jeroboam and Judah by King Uzziah, the nation enjoyed a period of freedom and prosperity. Throughout this period, Egypt was weak and Assyria was occupied with problems elsewhere. Before Uzziah's death in the middle of the 8th century, Jotham seems to have been regent for some years. Several years before his own death in 731 B.C., he apparently put his son Ahaz on the throne. Neither Uzziah nor Jotham removed the idolatrous high place. Most prophets address one historical setting, their own. One of the unique features of Isaiah's prophecy is that it addresses at least three different historical settings. The first period is the era of the prophet himself. The second is the time of the exile. And the third speaks of the return from Babylon. Other periods are referred to in passing or, or are involved in the book's message, such as the distant messianic era. I'll pause my reading and just say this is paramount to understanding the book of Isaiah. To understand that there's three periods of time that Isaiah has in view or in mind is absolutely foundational. So I want you to notice very carefully as we describe these three periods. The first is the Assyrian period. This earliest period covers the time of Assyria's emergence as a world power to its final destruction by the Medo-Babylonian coalition in 609 B.C. For a period of about 75 years, Assyria's neighbors, including Israel and Judah, enjoyed a period of relief from aggression by the Assyrian behemoth. The first rumblings from the looming storm came when Isaiah was about 10 or 12 years of age. An Assyrian monarch named Tiglath-Pileser I came against the land, and his enmity had to be bought off by the payment of a thousand talents of silver. His son and successor, Tiglath-Pileser II, ascended the Assyrian throne about 20 years later, when Isaiah may have been 30 or 35, and began at once a career of conquest, which spread alarm over all the neighboring nations. This signaled the end of Assyrian weakness and the beginning of their expansionist policy. In Syria, not Assyria, but in Syria, smaller kingdom to the north of Israel, Assyria being a vast empire, in Syria, it was felt that the new enemy could only be resisted by a general confederacy, a confederacy of the petty monarchs who divided among them the Syro-Palestinian region. And accordingly, an effort was made to unite them all under the presidency of Rezin of Damascus. Ahaz, however, the king of Judah at the time, declined to make common cause with the other petty princes. Taking a narrow view of the situation, he thought that his own interests would be best promoted by the crippling of Syria and Israel, powers generally hostile to Judah and close upon his borders. The immediate consequence of his refusal to join the league was an attempt to coerce him or to depose him and place upon his throne a prince who would adopt the Syrian policy. 
Rezin of Damascus and Pekah of Samaria attacked him in different quarters and inflicted on him severe defeats. They then conjointly marched into the heart of his kingdom and besieged Jerusalem. Under these circumstances, Ahaz placed himself under the protection of the Assyrian monarch, declared himself his servant, and humbly besought his aid. Tiglath-Pileser readily complied, and having marched a great army into Syria, conquered Damascus, slew Rezin, defeated Pekah, and carried a large portion of the Israelite nation into captivity. Let me pause there as you turn. Are you noticing what's happening here? In other words, Judah is not disconnected from the conquest of Israel, the northern kingdom. It's connected. In fact, Assyria was emboldened by the fact that Ahaz had reached out to them. They knew that the people of Judah would not be marching from their south to try to resist them. And so what they had done, instead of calling on the Lord to deliver them from Syria and Israel, they called on Assyria to instead deliver them. Ahaz personally appeared before him, Tiglath-Pileser, at Damascus and did homage for his crown, thenceforth reigning as a vassal and tributary monarch. The crushing blow dealt the kingdom of Israel by Tiglath-Pileser was shortly followed by a still severer calamity. In B.C. 724, when Isaiah was about 55 years of age, Shalmaneser V, Tiglath-Pileser's successor, determined to destroy the last vestige of Israelite independence and marching an army into the country laid siege to Samaria. The city was one of great strength and for three years resisted every assault. Finally, however, in 722 B.C. it fell, just about the time that Shalmaneser was dispossessed of his throne by the usurping Sargon. Sargon claims the glory of having captured the place and of having carried off from it 27,280 prisoners. Judah now stood stripped of independent neighbors manifestly the next country on which the weight of the Assyrian arms would fall. The submission of Ahaz and his subservience to Assyria throughout his whole reign had helped to defer the evil day, in addition to which Assyria had been much occupied by internal dissensions and by revolts of conquered countries, including that of Babylon. But with the accession of Hezekiah, a bolder line of policy had been adopted by the Jewish state. Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. In this rebellion, he had probably the countenance and support of Isaiah, who always exhorted his countrymen not to be afraid of the Assyrians. Isaiah's counsel was that no foreign alliance should be sought, but that entire dependence should be placed on Jehovah, who would protect his own people and discomfort the Assyrians should they venture on making an attack. Hezekiah, however, had other advisors also. Men of a different stamp, politicians such as Shebna and Eliakim, to whom the simple faith of the prophet appeared fanaticism and folly. The dictates of worldly wisdom seemed to them to require that the alliance of some powerful nation should be courted, and a treaty made whereby Judah, uh, Judea might secure the assistance of a strong body of auxiliaries, should her independence be menaced. The political horizon presented at the time only one power of this kind, only one possible rival to Assyria, Egypt. Egypt was, like Assyria, an organized monarchy with a considerable population, long trained to arms, and especially strong where Judea was most effective, that is, in horses and chariots. Closely allied with Egypt was Ethiopia, with resources from which, in case of need, Egypt might draw. It's uncertain at what date the Assyrian monarch began to threaten Hezekiah with his vengeance. 
Sargon certainly made several expeditions into Syria and even into Philistia. And in one place he calls himself the conqueror of the land of Judah. But there's no sufficient evidence of his having really made any serious attempt to reduce Judah, Judah to subjection. Sargon died around 705 B.C. and was replaced by Sennacherib. Immediately there was trouble in different parts of the Assyrian Empire. Encouraged by the Ethiopian monarchs who were imparting new vigor to Egypt and also by Merodach Baladan of Babylon. Apparently it was not until after Sennacherib had ascended the Assyrian throne in B.C. 705 that the conquest of the rebellious Jews was actually taken in hand by the great monarch. But the danger had loomed during the whole of Hezekiah's reign, and as it became more imminent, the council of the anti-religious party prevailed. Ambassadors were sent into Egypt, and an alliance appears to have been secured, whereby the reigning pharaoh, Shabbatok, and his Ethiopian vassal, Terhaka, undertook to furnish an army for the defense of Judea, if it were attacked by the Assyrians. Isaiah was correct in his predictions, for Sennacherib defeated Babylon in the first years of his campaigns, again secure, and in the first years of his campaigns, again secured his eastern border, and eventually stood at the gates of Jerusalem. The fate Isaiah had predicted years before had finally come to pass as the Assyrian flood reached Judah's neck. In the fifth year of Sennacherib, the attack came. Sennacherib in person conducted his army into Palestine, spread his troops over the whole country, took all the smaller fortified towns, 46 in number according to his own accounts, and concentrating his forces about Jerusalem, formally laid siege to the city. Hezekiah endured the siege for a time, but despairing of being able to resist for long and receiving no aid from Egypt, felt himself, after a while, forced to come to terms and buy off his adversary. On the receipt of a large sum in gold and silver, derived chiefly from the temple treasures, Sennacherib retired, Hezekiah submitting himself and professedly resuming the position of a tributary. This position of things satisfied neither party. Sennacherib distrusted Hezekiah, and Hezekiah no sooner saw the Assyrian host retire than he resumed his intrigues with Egypt. After a very brief interval, to be counted perhaps by months, war once more broke out. Sennacherib, with his main forces, occupied the region, keeping watch on Egypt, while at the same time he sent a detachment under a general to threaten, should opportunity offer, seize Jerusalem. Of the proceedings of this detachment, Isaiah gives a detailed account. He was himself present in Jerusalem and encouraged Hezekiah to defy his foes. Hezekiah acted on his advice, and Sennacherib was provoked to write a letter containing still more violent threats against the holy city. This letter Hezekiah spread before the Lord, and then the prophecy went forth for the destruction of his host. The place of the slaughter is uncertain, but there can be no manner of doubt that a tremendous disaster befell his army, producing complete panic and a hasty retreat. Nor were the consequences merely temporary. Like Xerxes in Greece, Sennacherib never recovered from the shock of the disaster in Judah. He made no more expeditions against either southern Palestine or Egypt. And of course your Bible gives us the casualty number, 185,000 people that God slew of the Assyrian army. Judah was now, for a considerable space of time, completely relieved from all threats of attack or invasion. Closing years of Hezekiah's life were peaceful and prosperous. Manasseh, during his early reign, was untroubled by any foreign foe and was too young to introduce innovations in religion. If the sun set ultimately in blood-red clouds, he must still have enjoyed an interval 
If Isaiah's sun set ultimately in blood-red clouds, he must still have enjoyed an interval of peace and rest between the final withdrawal of the Assyrians and the commencement of Manasseh's persecution. The interval may have sufficed for the composition of the book of Consolation. There's a second period in view in the book of Isaiah, uh, not in the earlier chapters, but later, and it's the Babylonian period of time, the time during which the children of Israel were in exile. Although chapters 1 through 39 are largely tied to local historical events, the situation is different with chapters 40 through 66. Chapters 40 through 55 seem to be offering hope to a people in exile. Chapters 56 to 66 appear to address a people who had returned from exile and faced both old and new problems. Merodach Baladan, a Chaldean prince, took power in Babylon in 721 B.C., declaring it independent of Assyria. Its status under this ruler for the next decade or so is somewhat uncertain, but it is known that Sargon entered Babylon in 711 or 710 without a fight. After Sargon's death, however, Merodach Baladan became a leader of movements of rebellion against Sennacherib and sought to involve Hezekiah. Sennacherib defeated and deposed Merodach Baladan, but Babylon revived again during the 7th century, becoming the dominant Mesopotamian power toward the end of that century. A coalition of Babylon and Medo-Persia toppled what was left of the Assyrian Empire in 609 B.C. This led ultimately to the subjection of Judah to Babylon and to the fall of Jerusalem in 587. Let me pause here for half a second. You remember when the ambassadors come from Babylon to Hezekiah. Hezekiah welcomes them into his home, shows them everything. It wasn't just him being a welcoming host. He was hoping, now that Assyria was pressing him, uh, to in some way form an alliance with Babylon. You see this trend over and over and over again of the people of Israel not looking to their God, but instead looking to the arm of flesh to deliver them, refusing to learn this truth that God is my salvation. Well, it ultimately led to their exile. Since God's covenant people were convinced that they were especially favored, the prophets could not fully bring them to face their peril. Therefore, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. was a traumatic experience. Babylon continued the Assyrian policy of deportation in which the leadership of a conquered nation was exiled to some distant land where they would be less inclined to rebel. Some Judeans had been deported already prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. when the policy was carried out again with more severity. And of course, Daniel and his companions would have been in that initial group that had been deported. The deported Judeans eventually found themselves in Babylon during its bright but brief interlude of political ascendancy. As a result of this disaster and defeat, some believed that their God had abandoned them. Therefore, they were in great danger of succumbing to attractive and seductive Babylonian religious ideas and losing their identity as the Lord's covenant people. Chapters 40 through 55 address this situation, reminding the people that their Lord had not abandoned them, but had chosen to demonstrate through them his superiority over the Babylonian deities. This superiority would be seen in God's ability to destroy the idols of the pagans, to redeem his people from their sins, and to bring them back into their homeland. There's a third and final historical period in the background of Isaiah's book, and it's that of the Persians. During the Persians, it was then that the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile to Jerusalem. Cyrus II, the Great, 
grandson of Cyrus I, came to the throne around 559 B.C. In fact, let me pause here and remind you that in the book of Daniel, you can actually read the story of the fall of the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians. And you can even read in uh, the Old Testament, I believe in the book of Isaiah itself, the prophecies that were given of how that they would leave those bronze or brass gates unlocked that protected the banks of the river Euphrates and that the uh, armies of the Medo-Persians, after having diverted the Tigris River or the Euphrates River, would go under the city walls and would sack uh, the Babylonians there at their capital. And you can read all about the handwriting on the wall that night that those armies fell. And so much of this, of course, goes hand in hand with all that the Bible teaches us and reveals to us. And so that's where we've shifted and transitioned into this different period. In 547 B.C., he, Cyrus the Great, marched through Assyria. And in 539, his Persian forces entered the city of Babylon while Daniel the prophet was there. They needed that help no longer, and in dramatic fashion, described in Daniel 5, they swept into Babylon and ended their brief Neo-Babylonian empire. Apparently, the Persians reasoned that people were more disposed to obey a conqueror they liked than one they hated. So Cyrus completely reversed the previous exile policy of the earlier Mesopotamian rulers and granted exiles the right to return home. He even provided imperial funds for the rebuilding of national shrines. In keeping with this policy, Cyrus also granted the Jews permission to return home. We have a Hebrew copy of this edict in Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 and an Aramaic memorandum of the same in Ezra chapter 6 verses 3 through 5. Cyrus's own inscriptions agree with the Old Testament view of him as a sympathetic ruler. In his first year, he issued a decree in the Cyrus Cylinder by which he gathered together all the inhabitants who were exiled and returned them to their homes. In the same decree, he restored deities to their renovated temples. The Jews had no images to take back, but they did restore their temple and its fittings upon their return to Jerusalem. Although this policy does have parallels, it should be noted that not all Persian kings adopted it. According to Josephus, Cyrus was inspired to allow the Jewish exiles to return after he had read Isaiah's prophecy. The promise that they could return home proved entirely trustworthy. This return from exile was brought about by a man specifically named in advance by the miracle of predictive prophecy. Cyrus would be God's Messiah of sorts, an anointed deliverer and an instrument of God's plan. And, of course, he's named as such in Isaiah 45, which, by the way, let me remind you, is over a hundred years before his appearance. This was pinned down. Isaiah wrote about this historical period describing the return of the Jews from Babylon to their homeland as the second exodus. Throughout his ministry, Isaiah delivered messages of both warning and comfort. And these messages alternate and recur throughout his book. He wrote to call the Lord's covenant people, and especially those from Judah, to to repent of their rebellion and hypocrisy and to turn in faith to the Lord of their fathers. Assyrian invaders were the immediate threat to Jerusalem and Judah. Isaiah warned his audience to turn to God and not to any human political alliance, Aram, Egypt, or Israel, for salvation from the disaster facing them. The Assyrian menace was very real. And the outrageous, sinful behavior of the rebellious people of Judah was also very real. Isaiah captured this moment of truth. Look with me in our summary portion. Isaiah's distinctive designation of God was the Holy One of Israel. 
And this stands both for his majesty and character and for his special relationship with an insignificant people in Western Asia. This relationship, given the fact of sin, clearly implies grace, but cannot deny his holiness. So that the people he has established a special link with, as well as those nations that have no such relationship, must feel the power of his judgment. In Isaiah's day, God's people lived in an area threatened by Assyria, who menaced every nation in the area and who conquered Samaria, the capital of Israel. After Isaiah's death, a political and military shift of power replaced Assyria by Babylon. Jerusalem, threatened but not taken by Assyria, was overcome by the Babylonians. In chapters 1 through 35, Assyria is the dominant political background. And in chapters 40 through 66, Babylon. While chapters 36 to 39 provide a transition from the one to the other. Dominating all, however, is Israel's God whose purposes of judgment and salvation are served by these two powers and by others, notably Cyrus the Persian. In this section of the history of Western Asia, the reader is repeatedly reminded of the wider setting, God's purposes of judgment on the whole world, and his saving purpose for Israel, forming the heart of a plan of blessing for the whole world. Chapters 1 through 35, with their focus on God's people against the background of Assyria, may be analyzed in several ways. It is, however, clear that a threefold analysis develops the theme of God's purpose for his people in three variations. Chapters 1 through 12 focus on Judah and Jerusalem. Their sin and consequent judgment are emphatically delivered. But this, al- but this already insignificant people is to have a glorious destiny. They are to be the center of the knowledge of God for the whole world. A small remnant and the messianic child come into focus And they comprise God's plan to demonstrate his holy control of history. Chapters 13 through 27, falling into natural subdivisions of 13 to 23 and 24 to 27, focus first on the individual nations of Western Asia, beginning with Babylon, the power yet future, and Assyria, the current power. This section includes both Israelite kingdoms. God decrees judgment on each nation, And this is followed by a picture of universal judgment and an assurance that God's purpose for his people will triumph through their restoration. Chapters 28 through 35 also fall into two sections, 28 to 30 and 34 and 35. First of all, we have the solemn reminder, reminiscent of much in chapters 1 through 12, of the rebellious sin of God's people, especially their failure to hear him and to trust him. But with further reminders also of his purpose to bless them. The last two chapters of this part recapitulate chapters 13 through 27, showing the judgment of the whole world while making it clear that this includes particular nations represented by Edom and celebrating in glowing praise the triumph of God's redemptive grace for his people. So the reader who has followed the whole sequence of oracles from chapters 1 to 35 has been taught by repetition of theme with variation of treatment the great truths implicit in the phrase, the Holy One of Israel. Chapters 1 through 35 emphasize the need for faith and the folly of trust in the flesh. This theme continues in the transitional chapters of 36 to 39. The mixture of faith and unbelief so often characterizing God's people assumes flesh and blood in the person of Hezekiah, so trustful in Jerusalem's great crisis and yet so compromising in his relations with Babylon. So the scene is set for the chapters to follow. Chapters 40 through 66 belong together. 
Yet there is a threefold structure in them, punctuated by warnings to the wicked. Chapters 40 through 48 present the people in their future state under Babylon's domination. Yet the sovereign Holy One of Israel has not forgotten his purpose for the remnant of his people. There is strong emphasis on his uniqueness and his control of history, especially in the advent of Cyrus. Just as God had done in Egypt, so now he would overthrow the deities of the tyrant empire Assyria. The messianic theme reappears in a new form in the introduction of the servant of the Lord in chapter 42. Chapters 49 through 57 are dominated by the servant and his ministry, not only to Israel, but also to that wider world that has been so much in view earlier. Atonement through substitution is described, celebrated, and proclaimed. Chapters 58 through 66 explore the final issues of salvation and judgment with the servant as the supreme agent of both. The ultimate glory of Zion is to be set in the context of a new creation, but the book ends with the prophetic realism of a warning to the impenitent. What is the overarching theme of Old Testament theology? Perhaps it's the covenant. Here in Isaiah, God's special relationship with Israel is presupposed throughout. Perhaps it's the kingdom of God. The whole structure of the book brings out the implications of God's sovereign control of things in the interest of his kingdom. Perhaps it is promise and fulfillment. Here we see time and again the word of divine authority being fulfilled and further fulfillment thereby pledged. Perhaps it's simply God himself, Israel's holy one. This book is one long exposition of the implications for Israel and the world of who and what he is. So this great prophecy, its whole structure unified by its teaching about the Holy One of Israel, who is true to his word, faithful to his covenant, and pursues the establishment of his kingdom, is a classic disclosure of the very heart of Old Testament faith. One final section we'll read here and will be done tonight. And I wasn't going to include this, but I felt like it might be edifying. You never know who might hear it. You never know who you might encounter. So let me read this very quickly on the authorship of the book. Now, you and I know and are convinced uh, that God inspired the book of Isaiah. That it's not the words of men, but it's the very words of God. But we also have much established evidence regarding the fact that Isaiah was the penman. And you might say, well, preacher, that's a given, but it's not to everybody. The authorship of the book of Isaiah has been much discussed in modern times. The traditional view of both Jews and Christians is that the prophet Isaiah of 8th century B.C. Jerusalem is the author of the 66 chapters attributed to him. However, this view has been challenged by modern criticism, which find at least two and possibly three or more authors for these chapters. Those advocating two authors claim that the traditional Isaiah of Jerusalem wrote chapters 1 through 39, and that a Deutero-Isaiah, most likely living in Babylon, wrote chapters 40 through 66. Those suggesting at least three authors usually divide Deutero-Isaiah into two parts and call the third section, chapters 56 through 66, Trito-Isaiah. Some also suggest that additional sections within the book have other authors. The traditional view of the unity of Isaiah and its single authorship is based on internal biblical evidence. In 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 32, reference is made to the vision of the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, which is included in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Some believe it is possible that both Zephaniah and Jeremiah are dependent upon sections of Isaiah 40 through 66. Isaiah's authorship of the later disputed chapters 
of his book was a tradition accepted by the New Testament writers as they quoted and used this material. Examples of this are found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and in the Pauline epistles. Within the New Testament, such personalities as John the Baptist, the Ethiopian eunuch, and the elders of Nazareth attributed these disputed chapters to a prophet named Isaiah. It seems unlikely that they would ever think about this material in the way that modern scholars present it. Serious theological and ethical problems arise if the New Testament evidence is ignored or denied. Some suggest that the New Testament authors were ignorant of the truth concerning the authorship of Isaiah. But for those who accept the New Testament as inspired and reliable, I'll raise my hand to that, it is not enough to say that the New Testament writers were unlearned and naive men. Furthermore, that would not apply to Paul, who was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. Paul would have been aware of any Jewish tradition of the Deutero-Isaiah, and if there had been a composite authorship of this outstanding book, careful Jewish tradition would surely have preserved this information as it did other cases of composite authorship like Psalms and Proverbs. Even greater problem, <laughs> an even greater problem is created by those who suggest that the New Testament writers knew better but were simply accommodating themselves to commonly accepted but erroneous ideas of their times. This raises not only ethical questions, but also the question of which other statements in the New Testament might only be reflections of what their authors believed about God, angels, demons, and the life to come. Either case, ignorance of the truth or deliberate accommodation of error creates more problems than it solves. In addition to the New Testament witness concerning Isaiah's authorship, other lines of evidence support the traditional understanding of the text. For example, it can be shown that the last chapters of Isaiah reflect the Canaanite background of Jerusalem rather than the alleged Babylonian setting of a Deutero-Isaiah. The imagery used and the natural references to the terrain and topography are all in keeping with the tradition that Judah is the setting for these chapters rather than with the theory of a Deutero-Isaiah living in Babylon. The landscape and the climate of Canaan provide the alleged Deutero-Isaiah with the majority of his metaphors, which are based on mountains, forests, snow, land made fertile by rain, not by the overflow of rivers or by irrigation, and drought, and make frequent mention of Lebanon, the sea, and the islands. Such references are very natural in a message originating from Canaan, whereas they would be highly unusual and contrived for a resident of Babylon. When Deutero-Isaiah portrays an idolater, he shows him taking his hatchet and going into the forest to cut down a tree, a very natural act in ancient Canaan, but not in Babylon, where virtually the only tree was the palm tree, which was not very suitable for making idols. It would serve us to settle this matter in our minds with a quote from Dr. Ironside. Of late, like all other books of the Bible, it, Isaiah, has suffered much at the hands of unbelieving and haughty critics who have done their best to undermine the faith of the simple in the integrity and unity of the Bible. But all that is settled for those who have faith by the Lord Jesus. When here on earth, he placed the seal of his divine approval upon it in its entirety. And from this book, the apostles drew again and again in their ministry after the ascension of the Savior, all by the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit, giving it a place of unquestionable authority as the very word of Jehovah. That there was but one Isaiah, not two, is evident from the testimony given by the inspired writer of the Gospel of Luke. He tells us that on the occasion of the Lord's first public visit to the synagogue at Nazareth, there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias, not of the great unknown. And from it he preached his gospel of deliverance to the captives and the acceptable year of the Lord. 
the glorious predictions of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the Lord cited as inspired scripture and written by Isaiah, not as the writing of an unknown poet of the Maccabean or a later period. The book as it stands bears every evidence of being preserved in its divinely arranged order. It is only an unbelieving ignorance coupled with amazing egotism that could lead any to think to rearrange and dissect it in the manner of modern critics. It is a virtual denial of inspiration and a biased attempt to destroy the true prophetic character of the messianic portions of this magnificent golden prophecy. Unbelief finds difficulty where faith bows with adoring reverence.